Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, I promised you in the pre-show we were going to be talking a little bit about video games. So I wanted to tell you about the time that a single letter almost ruined an entire franchise. Okay? That franchise was the Alien franchise, as in the Ridley Scott, uh, you know, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream horror movie, right? Uh, that, that film came out in 1979. Uh, the, the James Cameron sequel, James Cameron, Titanic, and Avatar, and all of those, right? That James Cameron. Uh, 1986, he made a sequel called Aliens, put an S on the end, right? And uh, that was less of a, like, horror in space and more of, like, an action. So you had, like, space marines and aliens and all, you know, lots of aliens. Uh, and, and that franchise has spawned, I mean, there's, like, six more movies after those first two. There's comic books. Like, there's a Batman versus Alien, com you know, I mean, everything you can imagine. There's novels, and of course, there's video games. There are a lot of video game incarnations of the Alien franchise. And there's one that came out in 2013 called Aliens, colon, uh, Colonial Marines, where you were supposed to just, you know, be a space marine and basically run around and shoot aliens. And this particular game, Aliens, Colonial Marines, has become known as one of the worst games of all time. It was put out by Sega. And again, if you've, I assume not all of us have seen the Alien movies, because I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. But you know, the, the, the xenomorphs are kind of big, scary, almost like bug-looking things. And in the movies, you know, they hide in the dark hallways, they jump out, they can crawl in the walls or crawl in the ceilings. And when they're, you know, when they're coming at the main characters, like it's a very scary kind of experience. Well, apparently in this game, uh, Aliens Colonial Marines, they didn't do any of that. They just sort of would like walk down the hall on their hind legs, just sort of casually strolling toward you. And it made them, you know, one, not very scary, and two, really easy to uh, dispatch with extreme prejudice, right? So the game, uh, it just, it, it, was, it was universally panned. People said, uh, don't know what they were thinking when they designed this game, but it, it took all of the all of the things we love about this franchise and completely ignored them to make this very forgettable, very easy sort of game. That was in 2013. In 2018, uh, the, the game was launched on the online gaming platform Steam. And uh, one of the benefits of the Steam platform is it's apparently pretty easy to get in and find the actual code of the game. And so some intrepid amateur coder said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack this game open and see exactly why it's so bad. And he was able to locate a single line of code that was actually to blame for the whole thing being awful. And here it is, I'm going to show it to you. So here's the line of code. See if you can spot in here, I know we're all coding experts, right? But see if you can spot, can anyone see anything they think might be wrong? It's okay if you can't. Um, I'm going to point it out to you. Right at the end, see at the very end there, it says, attach pawn to teether. Okay? And if you, if you go right back up, you can see it's supposed to be attach Zeno to tether. Right? This is, a so basically, apparently what's happening in this code is whenever uh, a, a xenomorph, an alien, pops onto the screen, the computer game goes, okay, how is this thing supposed to act? And it goes to this line of code that's supposed to tell it how to act. And it says, well, um, we put all of the instructions for how aliens are supposed to act in tether. So go look in tether. And the game's like, we couldn't find tether. Uh, so we're just gonna have it do the generic basic thing 
that is like what you do if it doesn't know anything else to do, which is, you know, like kind of walk towards you like a, you know, NPC character or whatever. So because of that singular A right there in Teether, right, that's what ruined the entire game. Uh, the guy took that out and made it attach pawn to Tether, and he had a completely different play experience of this game that was, you know, had become known as one of the worst games of all time, that, like, betrayed the roots of the franchise and blah, all the, you, know, all, you know, all the things people say, right? Um, yeah, because of that one, I mean, that just, that boggles my mind, right? And yet, if you've ever worked with computer code, you probably have a lot of empathy for the poor programmer who did that, because uh, it, most of the time when you make a typo in your code, it crashes the whole thing, or right? it's called bad code, right? And so you know that the thing doesn't work because it's completely crashed. And then, again, I, I, uh, in college, one of my roommates was a computer science guy, and I, would, I many times went to bed at night, and he was still at his computer trying to find the one typo he had made in all of his code for his project that was due the next day, right? But when the game worked, it just didn't quite work right. Uh, I guess they didn't know where to look to try to fix it, so you know, they just released the game. Uh, that's the thing that I think fascinates me about computer code, is, is every single part has to work together in harmony, uh, and all it takes is one little thing to go wrong to really shipwreck the whole program. Uh, and again, most of us, I think, never, don't ever think about that, but stop for a moment and just kind of start making a list in your head of all of the things in our lives that run on computer code. Right? I mean, our phones do that, obviously. A lot of us have smart home devices that's all down to the ones and the zeros. Uh, our streaming today, even our sound, and our, like all of this stuff is running off of uh, computer code. And it, we rely on people who had the training and the experience to make sure that this code is good code right? that's running together. And so if you'll allow me to kind of stretch that metaphor a little bit, I was, as I was working on the message for today, I kept thinking about computer code and about what you know, good code versus bad code because we're, what we're going to see today is Jesus praying for us to be unified, to, to work together and to be one. And uh, I think a lot of churches look at that oneness as a uniformity, as everyone having to be the same, think the same, act the same, vote the same, all that kind of stuff. But Jesus's idea of oneness is something that looks a lot more like code. Like it's, it's deep, it's complex, it's different. It's all of these different things working together to accomplish something that's, that's genuinely miraculous, you know, that, that, that really is, is oftentimes awe-inspiring. And so that's really what I want to invite you into today as a, a consideration with us of what, as a church, what oneness means, what oneness looks like, and what our unity looks like. And I think particularly here at Catalyst, with us being a, a hybrid congregation of people who are in the, in the Dallas Metroplex and our online folks uh, who are all over the country, right, we, we have sort of a unique... Uh, window into what this oneness looks like. Because it, for us, it's not even everyone being in the same physical space together like a lot of churches are. So uh, as we begin worshiping this morning, that's what I want to invite you into. Jesus calls us to oneness, and it's a oneness with him, a oneness, you know, a oneness with God, but it's also a oneness with one another, a oneness that doesn't look like uniformity. It doesn't look like everyone just being the same. And in many ways, that's a lot harder to do, I think, than, than uniformity, right? Uh, this, this kind of uh, unity in diversity. So, uh, so as we begin this morning, that's what I want to invite you to consider. We're going to start out by worshiping together today, by singing some songs together. And uh, obviously, later in our gathering, we're going to be receiving communion. 
So if you're in the building, hopefully you got one of our little communion cups from Tim on the way in. Uh, if you're virtual with us, hopefully you've got something prepared, something to eat, something to drink, so that later in our gathering we can receive communion together. Uh, but for now, I want to hand it over to Nathan and the worship team and invite you to stand with me as we begin worshiping together. This is the season of Eastertide, uh, and we actually only have one more week. Next Sunday is Pentecost. Uh, so we're in the 50 days between our celebration of Jesus's resurrection and then the celebration of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I always kind of call the church's birthday. Uh, and so during this, during this 50-day period, we ask, what does it mean to say that Jesus is risen from the dead? What is, what is the good news of the resurrection for us? Why is Easter more than just a cool thing that happened one time 2,000 years ago, right? How is it an ongoing uh, lived reality for us? And so uh, this year, our, our series has been called Decoder Ring, and we've been exploring what it means to say that Jesus shows us how God is at work in the world. He reveals to us things that often are hidden from our eyes, uh, either because we don't know what to look for or we're uh, not looking in the right places or whatever. And so, uh, you know, we began on Easter Sunday with that celebration uh, that Jesus' resurrection was an, uh, day eight instead of a, a day one, right? It was, it was the beginning of a new creation, not a recycling and going back to the old way of things. Uh, and since then, we've been looking at where Jesus is, how we find Jesus at work among us, and then again, also what it means to say that Jesus' work is not something that happens after we die when we go to heaven, but something that we're involved in here in the here and now. Uh, and so today, uh, we're going to look more specifically at what it means to be in that work together, right? What it means to be a church, and then of course, that'll all culminate next week on Pentecost Sunday, uh, which I'm, I'm very, very excited about. All I'll tell you is that I had, I had to call my, uh, my rabbi friend and, and get some insights on, on stuff for next week. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Uh, but for this week, uh, we're going to talk about what it means to say that we are all in this together. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of us have had experience of, of churches that uh, talk about church unity in a way that looks like uniformity right? Where we all have to think the same way. We all have to believe the same things. We all have to vote the same way. And if you don't, you're sort of made to feel as though you're lesser than or as you don't belong or something like that. Uh, and, and if you're a part of Catalyst, you know that we've, we're a little different from that. We're kind of a church full of weirdos. I mean, you know, look at who your pastor is, right? Uh, and so... Um, you know, we used to say that Catalyst is a church for everyone, but I, I think we know that's not true today, right? This is, we're not the kind of a church that just anyone is going to connect with. Uh, we're the kind of a church that I think is for sort of the weirdos and the outcasts and the people that like regular church doesn't really work for. And so I don't think a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is going to be surprising for a lot of us here who call Catalyst our church home, um, but I, I do hope it's an encouragement. I hope it's something that inspires you and that stirs your imagination and that it helps you consider what God is calling us to next as a congregation. Uh, so we're going to be in John 17 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with us or click over there with us. If you, if you didn't bring a Bible and you're in the building, you can grab a free Bible out of the back. And uh, John 17 is on page 649. Uh, as you're turning to John 17, this is a prayer. The whole chapter, John 17, is a prayer that Jesus offers at the end of this long discourse that he's had with his disciples. And we've been in that for a few weeks now, right? Uh, but this is, this is all set during the Last Supper 
the night that Jesus is betrayed and the, the, the night before he's crucified. And so this is very much sort of a, a famous last words sort of experience. And, and the, it all culminates in this prayer where Jesus knows that his time is short, knows that he's about to go to the cross. And so he's offering this prayer over his followers. And I think one of the reasons this is such a beloved passage is because Jesus is praying for us, right? For the people who follow him. And so it's, you know, it's not just for the people in the room, but, but we can understand that what Jesus is, is praying here is, is over us too. And so again, it's, it's just a really beautiful passage. And so we're going to read a few verses of it. And I just want to kind of <clears throat> take our time through this passage and see, you know, what is Jesus praying and what are the implications for us today as, as people who are, who are being prayed over in this way? Uh, so let's begin in, in the first verse of John chapter 17. So again, he's just said all this stuff for like, four, or for like you know, three or four chapters now, right? And so then after, after saying all this stuff, right, Jesus looks up to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Which again, if, you've, if you like just read John's gospel straight through, he keeps saying, oh, the hour's not yet here, or the hour's approaching, or like it's not the hour yet. Well, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given to him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I wish, we could, I wish every week we could just like read the whole Gospel of John because you'd see this stuff so much more clear. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. Okay. But it's fun. It's cool. Uh, the word glory is one that it's like one of John's key words that he uses a bunch over and over and over through his Gospel. And it's one of the words that he uses because he's intentionally subverting the meaning of it, right? Um, in his day, when, you know, they talked about the glory of the kings or the glory of the Caesars or the glory that you would win in battle. And so, uh, you know, we use that word a little bit today, but I think a pretty good modern analog is fame. Okay, Jesus is talking about his own fame and how God has brought him fame and how he's, through his work that he's been doing, he's been bringing fame to God. He's making the God of Israel known Right? He's bringing him glory through what he's about to do, finishing his work. And again, in John's gospel, Jesus' last words on the cross are, it is finished. Right? All through his gospel, he keeps talking about the work that he's up to. He's about his father's work. He's doing his work. And then right here, he's like, okay, my work is done because I'm about to go to my glory. And, and we know kind of that hindsight is twenty twenty thing, right? We know that every time in John's gospel, Jesus is talking about his glory, the thing that he's going to be famous for, we know he's talking about his crucifixion, right? The time he, uh, back in John 3, he talks about the time he's going to be raised up and made glory, you know, that's going to glorify him. Well, we, again, we know that when he's raised up, it's not like on a pedestal, it's on a cross, and again, if you think about what is Jesus famous for, well, he's famous for being crucified, right? Like that's, that's, and so that's why I said John is subverting this word. That's what he's doing. Because typically, crucifixion was something that was very shameful. It was the opposite of glory. It was inglorious, right? It was, it was shame, not fame. And yet Jesus has taken that 
and turned it around. And he's, he has said, there's this, there's this thing that we, we, me and God, my father and me, are known for, and it's been true since the beginning, uh, since before creation. It's this kind of particular way of being famous. And it's, it's embodied on the cross. Okay? Um, in, in the Revelation, which is part of this same kind of like writer's corpus, uh, body of work, right? It, uh, it describes Jesus as the one who was crucified before the foundations of the world. Okay? Which a way I like to say it is before God decided to create, God had committed to die for us. Before God decided to create a world with us in it, God had already committed to die for us, to save us. And so when we talk about Jesus' glory, what Jesus is famous for, what he's known for, it's this self-sacrificing love, giving his own life to liberate us, to rescue us, to save us, to lift us up. And Jesus is praying that. Like at the beginning of the prayer, he's saying, okay, let's, let's make sure we all are on the same page here, right? I'm about to go to my glory, which means I'm about to be crucified. And in doing that, I am returning to the one who is the crucified one, right? The self-giving love uh, that is present from the beginning of creation until now. When it says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that's what it's talking about, right? God's character has never changed. God has always been the one who interacts with us through self-giving love. And we see that most clearly on the cross. In fact, that, that's what Jesus goes on to say, is that what he's about to do is show us who God really is. So here it is. I have revealed you, again, he's praying, right? God, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world, his followers, us. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word and now they know everything I have is a gift from you. I have passed it on, I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and they know that I came from you and they believe you sent me. Okay? Uh, again, this is this is a really important uh, sort of larger theological argument that John is making here that I, I don't know that it's impossible to overstate. That Jesus is the one who shows us who God really is. Okay? Uh, I can't tell you the number of times this has been flipped around when I've been in talks with someone. I've said, well, you know, Jesus says this and this and this and that. And they say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the Old Testament or in this other place, that and that and that and this, you know. And, and honestly, it's almost always to justify some kind of bigotry, misogyny, racism, something like that, right? Um, that when we see who Jesus is, and we see how he is in the world, and that comes in a conflict with other things we might believe to be true about God, uh, for some reason we want to try to like squeeze Jesus into those boxes and say, well, maybe we just didn't understand Jesus because he doesn't fit into these other conceptions of God that we have. And what Jesus is saying here, uh, and, and what, again, what the whole Gospel of John argues over and over and over and over again, is when you see Jesus, you see God. In fact, he said that in the text we looked at last week, right? When they said, how are we supposed to know who God is? And Jesus says, I've been with you all this time. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we don't read Jesus through the lens of the Bible, right? It's actually the other way around. And this is, again, this is a this is a theological principle that the church has adopted since ages back. We read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. So if, there's, if there are times when the way we understand different passages comes into conflict, which does happen, um, we start with Jesus, and then we work out from there. 
right? If there are times that we don't understand how God is at work in the world or we don't understand what we're meant to be doing or we don't understand uh, how to approach something, we start with that, uh, that, that thing that's become a cliche, right? What would Jesus do? Or what is Jesus doing, right? Because Jesus is the one who shows us most fully who God is. So I want to stop there before we move on. Because I think, again, as you'll notice, we haven't like, actually gotten to where Jesus is praying about us specifically yet. Um, but there's a reason for that. Uh, everything we do is grounded in who God is. And we see God most perfectly in Jesus. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up because I want us to I want us to just hang out with that for a minute. I want us to sing a song about it. I want us to just let that kind of sink into our bones, that Jesus shows us who God is, uh, that Jesus is the one who perfectly reflects the Father to us. And until we are connected to Jesus, we are not connected to God. Uh, in, in, the, in the full and deep way that God has called us to. So if you would stand with me, I want to hand it back over to Nathan and the team, and uh, we're going to sing it together again. We're getting to where Jesus's prayer turns to talk about us, and again, I think it's important to remember that it's grounded in these statements that he's made about uh, the fact that he shows us who God really is, and he shows us that especially when he goes to the cross, that who God is is this uh, force of self-giving love who animates the universe, the one who is before all things and who created all things and who ultimately gives themselves for the good of their own creation. Uh, that, that's, that's what he's prayed so far, and that's informing what he's about to say next. So let's keep moving. Jesus says, now, my prayer is not for the world, uh, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Which, again, there's that glory thing, right? We, our, uh, our job is sort of to make Jesus famous, the same way Jesus made the Father famous. So now I'm departing from this world. They're staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name, now protect them by the power of your name. And then here's the big part. So that they will be united just as we are. The original Greek there, right, is so that they will be one just as we are. Uh, again, throughout John's gospel, Jesus talks a lot about how he and the Father are one. And this gets him in a lot of trouble with the religious leaders because, again, they were all Jewish and the, the prayer that Jewish people prayed every morning, the Shema, right, is Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, another way that, that that gets translated sometimes is remember that uh, the Lord is God alone, right? There's no other God. And so when Jesus goes around saying that the Father and I are one, like they hear that he's claiming to be God, which he was. Uh, what's, what I think is just incredibly provocative in this prayer is that Jesus then turns around and prays that God would make us one the same way. Right? That God would scoop us into that oneness. Okay? And again, church theologians, uh, particularly the mystics, love this language because what Jesus is doing here is inviting us into the life of the Trinity. Okay? And again, I know the Trinity is one of those words, but when we say it, we're like, whoa, what? You know, it's super confusing. And it's sort of, here's the thing, it's sort of supposed to be confusing, okay? That's like a feature, not a bug, because 
it's holding together two things that, that should not go together. And that is the idea that God is three persons and God is also one God. Okay, so you know math, one plus one plus one does not equal three, except in theology. Okay, it's a paradox, it's a mystery, and that's on purpose. Okay, because I think what we want to do and uh, what, what our Muslim friends often uh, accuse us of is treat God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three different gods. Right? And so Muslims will also say, you Christians are just a bunch of polytheists, right? You, just, you, you have three gods, and we know that God is one, right? That's, again, that's the, that's the, the Muslim confession, you know, there is no God but God. And we say, no, 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 there's not three gods, there's one God, okay? So then, uh, then we want to maybe go over to, that's where our, you know, our Jewish friends get angry with us. And they're like, no, you, but you, you say that the, the, the Father is God, but then you also say Jesus is God, and you say the Holy Spirit is God. So is, is what you're saying, like, God uh, sort of has three different hats that he wears, right? Like, I'm a husband and a pastor and a son, right? And so sometimes God does dad stuff, and sometimes he does son stuff, and sometimes... No, right? That's a... Again, we don't have to get into this, but that's an ancient heresy called modalism, where it's like, no, 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 God doesn't just like sometimes do some things and sometimes do other things, but it's all the same God. No, it's three different persons, but they're also one God. And again, this is the point where most people throw their hands up and say, Those, that, it sounds like you're just talking silly talk. Those things can't all coexist together. And we say, exactly, right, yes. Uh, the thing about God that we believe is that God is beyond us. God is beyond our language. God is beyond our comprehension because God is the creator and we are the creature. And so it's actually a relatively bad sign when people say like, oh yeah, I understand God and I can explain them to you, right? We think, oh, that's, that probably means what you have is someone you made in your own image that you can then explain, right? One of the things I appreciate about the doctrine of the Trinity, as confounding as it is, as frustrating as it is, as much of a headache as it gives me when I try to understand it, is that it, it points, it doesn't define it points, right? It says, God is this way, or these are safe ways to talk about God. And we have to be careful, right? Not to start thinking of God as three different gods, not to start thinking of God as one God who shows up in these three different expressions of Godhood or whatever, right? But a mystery, a three and a one that can't coexist and yet somehow do in this, this thing that theologians sometimes call a dance, uh, where they're in perfect harmony working together, but they're all different, but they're all one. And it's this, it's this thing, uh, I don't, okay, dance is one of those things that I don't get as an art. Like, if someone was like, explain why this dance is artistic. I would say, I don't have the vocabulary. I don't understand it. But I can tell you, when I've been to dance recitals and I've seen like really beautiful dance, I'm just sort of left speechless when you have all of these different things happening and they create this something that's bigger than the sum of its parts, right? It's this beautiful sort of mysterious thing. And, and that's, that's sort of where the talking about the Trinity takes me, right? It's this thing that's beyond my comprehension, beyond my words. And yet what I see is this beautiful something at the heart of the universe that is harmony and joy, and self-giving love, and Jesus prayed that God would invite us into that, into this mysterious oneness, and that is something for me that is beautiful and profound, because again, it just flies right in the face of everyone who says that churches should be a place where everyone is uniform, right? We just don't see that in the Trinity. We don't see that in Scripture. We don't see that among the 12 disciples of Jesus. We don't see that 
uh, anywhere in, uh, in the Old Testament histories. We just never see a place where God mandates everyone be the same and act the same. Right? What we see is God gathering this, uh, this ragtag group of diverse people together and saying, I'm making you one in this mysterious and beautiful way. So I am saying all of that to sort of move us towards a time of response because I think we've all heard the melting pot metaphor, right? And the thing about a melting pot, when you throw a bunch of stuff in there, it all melts together, is it all ends up tasting the same, it all ends up looking the same, it all ends up in this sort of like uniform blandness, right? Uh, and that's why a lot of people have shifted away from melting pot metaphors to talk about like, I don't know, like a chef salad, right? Where you look at a chef salad, and it's like all this different stuff in there kind of hanging out together. And, you know, it's... Every bite is different. Everything is different, right? Um, or potpourri, where you have just a whole bunch of different stuff together and it creates this hopefully beautiful smell, you know, that, right? Like, that, that's, that's a better vision of what God is calling the church to, is that we're all different, but we're all different together. And what, what we're united around is not, not the behaviors and the beliefs and all of that, but around Jesus himself, the one who calls us to be one. Um, and I got to tell you that the place where this makes me the most encouraged is when I think about the work that is set before the church. When I look at our world today, when I look at the, the way marginalized people are being marginalized even further, are being attacked um, by lawmakers and policymakers and, and all of that kind of stuff, I, I so often feel hopeless. And in those times, it's usually because I'm thinking about this as a, a, myself as an individual trying to, to work against these things. And I see how overwhelming it is for me to, to go at it alone. And it's those times when I need to, one, be reconnected to God, right? I'm, I'm noticing in those times I have a distance from God where I'm not, I am not receiving God's invitation into the heart of the Trinity, right? Into that oneness that's at the center of the universe that Jesus has opened up for me. Um, but it's also where I'm feeling disconnected from my church family. And I'm not thinking about the fact that I've never been in this alone, um, that I've always been connected to uh, a church body who who gathers together to to be good for our world and for our communities. And so I want to offer, as, as we move towards the table today, that is a sort of reflection. Um, again, I, I just, I love that the communion table is a place where the only requirement that you have to come here is that you say yes to Jesus' invitation, you know. Jesus opens the table and says, all who are thirsty, come and drink. All who are hungry, come and eat of the bread of life. And, and so you end up, if you do communion right, with just like a mess of people here, right? Um, from all over the place, coming from all directions, all backgrounds. Uh, and again, the, the only thing we all have in common is that we've seen that Jesus is our hope. Uh, so I just, I love that every week that we do communion, but I think particularly for this week. Um, and of course, before we receive communion together today, we're going we're gonna to do a prayer of examine. And in the prayer of examine, I'm specifically asking you to consider uh, when you felt connected to God and to people in your church, and when you felt disconnected, right? And what those spaces are and what that's going to look like as we go into the week ahead. Uh, because for the last several weeks of this series, we've been talking about the work that Jesus has for us and what that looks like. And, and, and hopefully a lot of us are kind of beginning to discern some of those next steps that God has for us. And uh, I think one of the big mistakes I make a lot is forgetting that I'm, I'm never called outside of my church, but with my church. And so uh, I don't know if you're like me, but maybe you think about that too. And you think about this call that God has on you and it feels too big for you. 
And uh, it is too big for you, right? That's, that's how you know it's a God call and not something that you just came up with for yourself. Um, but the good news in that is that you're not called to that alone. You're called to that with the church. So uh, before we approach the table, let's, let's do this prayer of examine. Let's go through these questions and I'll let you give you some space to pray through them with the Holy Spirit. And then I'll pray for all of us together and then we'll receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. When in the last week have I felt connected to God and to my church? You know, as you look back over the week, when would you say, you know, those, those are times I really felt that spirit of oneness. Now, when have I felt disconnected in the last week? What were those times? Think about the week that's ahead of you. When in the next week might I experience disconnection from God or from my church? Finally, how is God calling me to pursue unity this week? Again, maybe that's oneness with God. Maybe that is oneness with church family. How is God calling me to pursue unity? pray together. God, you have called us together today to remember that you don't expect us to face our world alone. That you call us not only into unity with you, which is uh, uh, a profound and surprising mystery that we're so grateful for, You call us to unity with one another. You give us a spiritual family that's composed of all of these different people so that when we consider the work that you're doing in the world and how we can join in with that, we know that we're never doing that alone. That we get to draw on a beautiful mosaic of family, spiritual family, to work alongside in in following your call. What an incredible privilege 
And we're so grateful that you don't require us to, to quit being who we are. That, it, that, in fact, you created us as who we are, and you call us to discover more fully who we are through knowing your son Jesus, through being set free by him, so that we can bring our whole selves into our church family and find a space not where we have to pretend to be something we're not or suppress those parts of us that you created, but rather to be fully ourselves, bearing your image together. We confess those things are difficult for us. So we approach your table today, hungry and thirsty, to know you more, to be wrapped up into the divine mystery of your holiness, and to be made one with you and with one another. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for inviting us into the deep mystery of your love for us and your love for the world. Thank you for binding us together as a spiritual family, and thank you for setting places for us at your table. We offer these prayers and we approach your table now in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, this was the meal that he shared with his followers. And it was during that meal that he took bread and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. I know that Again, as I said earlier, probably if you've been a part of Catalyst for a while, a lot of what we talked about today isn't super surprising. Uh, diversity is one of our core values here, and, and we believe for a long time that uh, God calls us together not to be uh, uniform, but to be united and, and to really celebrate each other's differences as evidence of God's creative beauty. And again, how God equips us as a church to be good news to our communities. And so... Uh, I'm, going to, I'm just going to assume and guess that uh, we had a couple of different things happening in our, our time of response. I, I'm sure for some of us, what we really sensed in our spirits was a disconnection from God, a, a distance from God, a time, uh, probably a length of time that has been since we were really unified with God and welcomed into God's oneness. So if that's the case for you, uh, I want to really encourage you uh, to dive back into spiritual practices. And, you know, we have in the description and the YouTube, uh, if, you're, if you're in our live chat, we have our spiritual practices guide there. If you're here in the building, we have uh, on the wall out there, we have our, our spiritual practice guides. Um, there is just no replacing uh, deep, intimate time with God to just allow God to love us and to be in God's presence without agenda and just allow God to do what God wants to do, rather than, you know, treating it as a, a box to check or a piece of an agenda item or something like that. Uh, and those, the spiritual practice guides help us do that, right? They help us to lean into these spiritual practices in a way that becomes transformative for us, that, that allows us deeper into the mystery of the Trinity. Um, but, you know, there are probably some others of us who what we were sensing is a, a distance or a disconnection from church family. And maybe that's because you're newer to Catalyst, and so obviously, you know, you're not as connected. Uh, maybe it's because it's been a while and you're not sure, uh, you know, you've just been feeling some distance and you're not sure the way back. Uh, and so uh, for those of you who are in our C groups, you know, we have a couple weeks of those left. Um, I would love for in your C groups this week to spend some time talking about uh, the, the church family and who you love and, you know, what you love about them. It's that like compliment thing where you just like go around and like everyone says something they really appreciate about that person. And it's like terrible when you're the center of attention, but it 
Like secretly, it feels really nice, right? We know that. Um, I'm not going to do. I, you were nervous for a second, I know, but I'm not. I'm not going to uh, yet. Uh, but uh, that that can be a really beautiful exercise because not only is it an encouragement to the, to the individuals, but it reminds us that we're all different and that we're all different together, and that's by design. Again, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, if you're not in a C group, I would encourage you to just take some time with someone uh, someone else and go through that exercise. You know, you can get the discussion guide uh, again off of YouTube or out of our email newsletter or wherever you can you know get a hold of that. Uh, and just kind of go through some of these questions and really spend some time asking, what is, what is God calling me to, right? What's the next right step for me in terms of leaning into this oneness that God created us for, that Jesus prayed over us? Uh, because when we open ourselves like that, and when we're really, uh, I think, faithful to ask those questions, it's amazing what God will do. Now, as you're going, I do want to say thank you to all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst. We're really grateful for that. And a reminder to you that we've, uh, we've started putting our weekly giving numbers in our Beaker Mini. Uh, so, you know, the thing, you can scan the QR code, or again, there's a link to it in the uh, description of the video. So you can, you can get that and just see, you know, as you're giving what, what that looks like week to week. Um, we've started, we, we promised you we would do that, and so we've got that going as well. And I also want to thank all of our volunteers, those who are faithfully serving and creating this space for us to worship together every week. We're, we're really grateful for that. Uh, if you would stand, I want to dismiss us all with a blessing and remind you, next week is Pentecost. It is the birthday of the church, so it's like the second biggest day after Easter um, for me. I love it, so we're going to get a little loud, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, we're good. Um, uh, again, the message is going to be really fun, too. I think it's one of those, like, I don't know, I just... I just had a lot of fun with it. I'm looking forward to it a lot. So maybe it'll just be me having fun by myself, but that's fine. It wouldn't be the first time, right? Uh, so no, I think, I think it'll be a really, really fun experience for all of us. So, uh, so hopefully I'll look forward to seeing you next week for Pentecost. But for now, uh, as you're going Catalyst, would you go into a world that needs the love that God has shown to us? And would you go knowing that God calls us together not to be the same, but to be different together, to show a world that needs that unconditional love, uh, what they're missing. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see you next week.